When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. It's midway through the Australian Open. The quarterfinal lineups are set, and I am still alive, remarkably. This is Tennis Unfiltered. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. I'm James Gray of inews.co.uk and the iNewspaper. I've got our resident tennis coach, Calvin Betton, here to help me go through the Australian Open. George Belshaw, our tennis writer, is on his way albeit, I believe, running a little late. So we'll start without him, and he can bring us the uh, benefit of his insights when he gets back. We're going to talk about uh, Novak Djokovic. We'll talk a bit about Andre Rublev as well. Holger Rune, they had a, not necessarily a high-quality match, but certainly a dramatic match in five sets in the fourth round, as did Tsitsipas and Sinner. We'll have a look at that. In the women's draw, we lost Iga Shontek and Coco Goff, and they're the main lines in what is now an absolute bin fire of a draw. I don't think anyone will mind me saying um, but we'll start with the men's because, well, that's the one I've written down first. Uh, it's also the one that's freshest in my memory, having watched Alex Dimonor and Novak Djokovic last night. Five of the eight matches in round four went to five sets. Uh, it feels like it's been a tournament of five setters, in fact, uh, and late night finishes. As anyone who has been following me on Twitter or listening to the podlets or reading what I've been writing will know, there's been a lot of late night finishes and not many of them have been appreciated. Um, I, actually, before we get going, Calvin, I was going to ask you, what's the latest you've ever played or coached tennis? The latest I've coached would probably be finishing at about 10, 1030. Um, it's pretty good. Used to, yeah, uh, I mean, that's mainly because tennis centres don't open until uh, <laughs> like, much later. But that is always one, like, people always find it weird because I do sleep late. Um, I do go to sleep late and I do eat late. And I think all tennis coaches do because generally we we work until, when you work in a club, you're going to work until 9, 10 o'clock at night. And by the time yeah. you get home, it's half 10, 11 o'clock. 
Uh, the latest I've played, there used to be a big tournament that went off at Huddersfield, um, like a sort of national level tournament that went off at Huddersfield, a big one. And um, they would play up until, I've probably played up until two in the morning at some stage because it would the matches would start late on at night and they used to get it's a really good tournament actually where and i've seen other tournaments like this the sutton british tour has been similar where like they'll um that they, they have they make it a night of it so they'll have a good a, a bar night and and food in the bar so the matches will only start at say six o'clock and then there'll be three or four rounds of matches and you can easily mm. go on until one and two o'clock in the morning i was actually thinking though about the murray one today uh, the Murray with Kokinakis, and I thought to myself that, like, that sort of ta- the, the tangent of the match, how it went, in that um, once it got to sort of 12 o'clock, 11, 12 o'clock, and, and we know um, Tennessee Kokinakis, he, he enjoys himself outside of tennis. He he sort of like, you know, he does like a club and a bar. I know that, and there's nothing wrong with that. He's a young lad who, who likes to go out. And, and I thought then, you know, it's probably like thinking to Murray, like thinking about Murray, or you know, you you've not been up this late in in some time. Like this, <laughs> this is this is my wheelhouse. This I, I can drag drag you into the sort of one thirty two two thirty time zones. But then, when it gets to four o'clock, Andy Murray has about four or five kids, and he <laughs> he does know the hours of four and five o'clock. And then I wondered whether Murray starts thinking, "You're in my house now." <laughs> and, and, and was that the problem that Kokinakis didn't finish him in in his in his window of opportunity before it got to four o'clock? Like, like, this ain't this problem? ain't late anymore, sweetheart. This is early. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and Kokinakis was then flagging as as most lads who are twenty twenty three twenty four twenty five do at four o'clock in the morning. But if you've got four or five kids, four o'clock's the start of the day. This is child's play, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I can confirm that it felt both late and early. And, and what people and people who listen to the podler and maybe the last pod will know is that when you're a journalist, when the tennis stops, in some ways, that's when your job starts because then yeah. you start writing and then you've got to do the press conference and then you've got to write that and blah, blah, blah. And then you've got to do a podcast quite often after that. So, yeah, a late one. Um, we're going to talk about alternative scheduling ideas for the tournament because... Uh, I put something on Twitter saying what your burning questions and Rugby Post has been in touch and said talk about alternative scheduling ideas for the tournament please we will but George Belshaw is the scheduling expert so I think it's worth waiting for for him to come through with something uh, to solve all of our problems Um, uh, oh I I tell you what we also haven't talked about Calvin which we should is uh, Henry and Julian who made it through one round as I think we talked about on the last pod but then were beaten by the Dutch pair, um, I mean, I guess they're still quite new at this level to an extent, i.e. Grand Slam level. So, I mean, I know they'll be disappointed anyway because pros always are. Uh, yeah, it was disappointing. I actually just, just tonight, I rewatched the match for the first time um, and um, it was just close. You know, it was, it was a high quality doubles match, high quality serving. There weren't many rallies. Um, and, and as with most doubles matches, it it's on a knife edge and, you know, the other lads got a played a little bit better got a little bit more rubber the green and i think if they played that match 100 times they'd win 49 of them um mm. what i would say but yeah you know it's um it moves on and uh we move to the next uh tournament which for them will be dallas atp 
So where are their where are their next kind of moves? What does the, the next couple of weeks look like for them? Have they got jet setting um, to do or are they coming home? So Henry has gone straight to America because his girlfriend lives in America. Um, oh, yeah. So he's having a week with her and then he'll go to Dallas from there. Uh, Julian has come home because his girlfriend lives in um, England. Um, who both must have the patience of saints because they've barely <laughs> seen their boyfriends for the last six months. Um, so they've 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 been kind enough to grant them one week each, um, <laughs> and um, and, um, and then they meet they'll meet up in Dallas in I think two weeks time. Um, yeah. So there's a two fifty in Dallas and then a two fifty in um, Delray Beach, which they'll play. And then it's it, it the, after that it really depends how they do in those. It's then whether we're looking at um, Miami and Indian Wells um, or whether they'd probably have to get to a combined ranking of eighty, so forty mm. each um, to get in those. Um, or if they don't get to that, then we're probably looking at um, some sort of training block. I would think over that period. But I would imagine it's going to be Delray, sorry, Dallas Delray. And then possibly Acapulco, and then it will right. depend how they do in those. Um, just on that, like having a week off away from each other as doubles players, like how much of it is a week off? Like because it's in the middle of the season in some ways, as you say, there's still tournaments to go. Like presumably they'll both be in the gym still. Will they both be hitting still with someone they can find? I would think they'll probably have um, three or four days off um, because they've not really had that at all. I think mm. they've had a week off in the last sort of nine months um and then you know and the traveling obviously puts a stop on that because i know that henry's gone to henry flew straight to america so he had a 14-hour flight to la and then i think a four-hour layover and then a flight to denver and mm. jules i think maybe he's looking at a 36-hour flight home so you've got jet lag and everything so i would think they'll probably have maybe four or five days off and then they'll yeah. probably have maybe 10 days of hitting before the next tournament mm. Well, good luck to them, and uh, as I always say, it's nice to have a, a dog in the fight in some ways. Right, let's move on to the uh, singles main draw, because I promised that we would. Um, as I say, five of the eight matches going to five sets in the fourth round. We've got the quarterfinal lineup set now. It's Hatchinoff versus Korda, Sitsipas versus Lehechka, uh, Rublev versus Djokovic, and Ben Shelton against Tommy Paul in the all-unseeded, all-American uh, bottom quarter quarter final uh, but I suppose that the really the only place to start is Novak Djokovic uh, once again because he is the centre of attention his left hamstring remains the centre of attention he absolutely marmalised Alex de Mineur last night there's no other word for it I've decided 6-2 6-1 6-2 I don't really remember Novak Djokovic hitting the ball so hard quite apart from striking it well and being unbeatable he hit it so hard um, Alex de Menor did not have a single baseline to baseline winner. He his nine winners came from aces, overheads, and passing shots. When Novak Djokovic was stood on the baseline, he he did not hit a winner, which is a pretty remarkable stat for any fourth round of a Grand Slam. Calvin, I know you're pretty unconvinced by the the so-called injury, and I have to say, after after that performance, I find it hard to disagree with you. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm totally unconvinced. I'm not pretty unconvinced. Um, um, and I, I was amazed that even after he won today, I saw some quotes from Djokovic where he was talking about this blooming hamstring again. Like, he mm. just won, like, 6-2, 6-1, 6-2. And, like, putting the performance of the season so far, I'd say, from any player, 
and he's talking about, well, you know, maybe I don't know whether my hamstring holds up. That's just not how it works. Like, mm. if it was fine today, it's fine. And if, yeah, it, he, and if it wasn't fine, he wouldn't have won by that score. He was more optimistic, I would say, on it than he has been before. I mean, you know, optimism is all sliding scale, but he he did say that he recognised it was better today and, you know, he, he, he sort of recognised the scoreline and said, well, I can't exactly stand here. He said it's a courier on court. He said, I can't really stand here and say my hamstring's hurting because I've just absolutely binned the guy. Um, I mean, there's no love lost between Djokovic and Dimonor, by the way. They, they they don't get on and Dimonor said some pretty plain things about him. And it was funny because I was in Dimonor's press conference afterwards and he was asked, you know, do you think the guy's injured? And he just sort of laughed and went, well, I've just lost 2-1 and 2. Like, if he, if he's injured, what does that say about me? Yeah, yeah. Um, I saw those quotes, yeah. <laughs> I'm not a good enough tennis player to expose that. Or, I don't know, it looked good to me. He was just too good in all aspects. I actually thought it was a bit of an unfair question to say to the guy, do you think he's injured? <laughs> well, I won yeah, five I games, think, I... I didn't hear a winner. I think it was asked, though, because everybody knows the score, don't they? And I think everybody just finds it bizarre. Everybody finds it weird. And, and like I, I said on the pod last week, if, he, if his hamstring was hurting two days ago, which he had the, he had the trainer on, yeah, you know, he was like, it was, yeah. we were back to this sort of, he lost a set and we were back to this sort of, you know, is he going to be able to play on? He's got the trainer on, right? Your hamstring does not heal that quick. Even if he had a, a slight pull in the hamstring, it would, it's the slowest healing muscle in the human body. It wouldn't mm. have healed in this time. So I can only assume that he's not injured at all. And either he thinks he is, there's something psychologically in his head, which might be the case. Some people have that. Or, or for some reason, he feels he's got to say these types of things. Well, uh, Calvin, he's got an answer for you. Um, because the one of the Serbian journalists uh, asked him whether he was faking it, basically. or I suspect he wasn't phrased like that because I know how those press conferences go. But um, He says, I leave the doubting to those people. Let them doubt. Only my injuries are questioned. When some other players are injured, then they are the victims. But when it is me, I'm faking it. It's very interesting. I don't feel I need to prove anything to anyone. I'm not really interested at this point in what people are thinking and saying, which, by the way, is objectively a lie because he's currently talking about what people are thinking and saying. Uh, it's fun. It's interesting to see how the narrative surrounding me continues. Narrative that is different compared to other players that have been going through a similar situation, but I'm used to it. just gives me extra strength and motivation, so I thank them for that. Um, Novak Djokovic playing the siege mentality card, which has been used so effectively by coaches over the years. What? Which of the players claim to have extremely serious injuries? Not extremely serious, but serious injuries. Well, the obvious comparison is... The obvious comparison is Nadal, right? But Nadal is evidently struggling, and he doesn't win the tournaments, and he pulls out. You know, Nadal does yeah. withdraw from tournaments regularly. So the, the example that was put to me on Twitter, inevitably, by someone with a crocodile in their handle, um, was the the French Open this year, when obviously Nadal said before, look, I've got this injury, and I've got this doctor with me, and I'm dealing with it. And then obviously afterwards had surgery. I guess the difference is... I don't remember Nadal having a medical timeout for his foot injury at Roland Garros. Like, he he was just, you know, he, he was like, I've got this thing, I'm not going to talk about it anymore. Uh, let's talk about it after the tournament. 
And it, it's a pain, and it, he's got a, a, a pain, he's got a foot condition, right? That, as I said last week on the pod, it's the nature of the injury, it's this hamstring injury. You cannot play, and I, again, I've spoken to two or three more players in the last couple of days, we were discussing it. Every single person has said, you cannot play with an injured hamstring. Your leg would not work. So anybody with crocodiles in their, um, in their Twitter bios or anything like that, they need to get a grip because your leg would not work if you have a tear or a pull in your hamstring. If your hamstring is tight, then, yeah, it's you can feel it, but that's not an injury. That mm. doesn't stop you doing anything. So And, and strapping it up wouldn't, wouldn't prevent your hamstring from being tight. Uh, George Belshaw has joined us, fresh from the uh, five-a-side pitch. Uh, George, I have written down a question for you, and you've arrived at the perfect moment. Uh, is it possible? Is it possible that Novak Djokovic has decided that everyone talking about his injury all week is like one of those marginal gains, and that this is actually just another piece of Machiavellian shithousery, uh, or, or is he just being overly dramatic? I mean. It, it, it's so hard to kind of get in the mindset of why this guy would want to be running around faking an injury other than, you know, to, re- to really wind people up. I mean, I, I, I say faking, you know, kind of... Uh, hyperbolic way? Hyperbolic way. I mean, the player, the, the person I was thinking about this week, because I agree with Calvin, like hamstring injuries are not one that you can really muck around with. You know, we had all these conversations about an ab problem before and how severe that was. But a hamstring is something that, you know, if you've had any, a hamstring injury, you, you know you can't do anything. The, the one person I could think of who's kind of had a hamstring injury in professional sport recently that I was thinking about was Mikhail Antonio. And he, but okay. even then, he just kept coming off at like fifty-five minutes. Djokovic is playing like three hours of sport every time, and a lot of kind of stop, start, left, right. Mm. You know, it, it just it, it just feels so weird. And you know, a tight hamstring. Does he really need that much treatment? Does he need to make this much of a deal of it? But the other side, from the kind of mental thing, you know, I do get a bit of a feeling with Djokovic that there's this kind of stemmed feeling of, you know, people don't respect my wins as much and sometimes is there just a bit of a mental thing where he kind of wants to feel like the world's against him wants to feel like every injury is so bad that even if it's kind of a lighter thing than he's making out um but he wants to kind of prove he's this superhuman brilliant you know i can get through anything because i'm novak Djokovic. I, I don't know it's all so odd and you know diminor as i'm sure you guys have already covered apologies for being late um you know he, he didn't believe him you know, he said no. as, he said as much in his post-match interview, and it, it's hard to believe him. To be honest, you know, he makes it hard because you watch him yesterday. And you're like, bloody hell! There's nothing wrong with this bloke. He's pamping someone who's a, been a top twenty player. Can't it can't be that bad? I, I think in terms of to answer the question is what what would be the point in it? Why does he do it? You're seeing it in front of our bare eyes. The people on social media with crocodiles in their in their eyes, they're just they're banging on about how it's an amazing achievement. He's winning despite this hamstring injury. Mm. And he seems to just thrive on that because they did, he tested it. He, he almost, he gave it a test run two years ago, didn't he? With the, with the yeah. ab injury. And, <laughs> and it's like, he got so much over the top praise for that from his fans that look, it's amazing. How, how many times has Roger Federer won a grand slam with a three inch tear in his ab? Well, well, Novak's done it now. And you know, that's why he does it. I'm certain that's why he does it. Uh, he, he did mention that incidentally in his Serbian quotes where he said, 
Um, maybe I'll release the MRI. Maybe I won't. Uh, which, <laughs> regarding yeah. his abdominal, uh, I, tear. I wonder which it'll be. <laughs> the real head scratcher. <laughs> the the other thing I would say about his his kind of medical history, and this will be something interesting to kind of watch over the years. <laughs> is like there are times where he has in the past had like an injury he's been talking about, and if the match is going badly, and I'm thinking Burdick at Wimbledon a long time ago with a shoulder mm. where he was kind of making a point about the scheduling after he had to play the day a day later because they wouldn't move him from court one to centre or something when mm. the rain had been hitting. Um, the other one that sticks out was Vavrinka, US Open. I can't remember the year, but he had a shoulder problem. Kind of fourth round, didn't seem to fancy it when he went two sets down. He is a bit kind of... I think he does make calls within the match when he's like, you know, he might have a slight problem if the match is going against him, he kind of might might sack it off. So that that would be interesting if he gets put into a position, you know, against Diminor, he was just too good, no problem. But if if it does if he found himself two sets down against someone, I have seen him just be like, actually, screw this, can't be bothered, and then he'll be back two weeks later still pumping everyone again. Um it's but hard yeah, it, to believe it's... that that situation is coming imminently. I think Andre yeah. Rula probably going to get chopped in a similar way, but I could be wrong, Calvin. I, th- I think it's interesting that um, the pl- you look at the players that are left and the players he, who he's playing, like they they don't really have the capital that they can challenge this. I think if this had have come in in peak top big four type thing, I don't know whether he'd be trying this versus, for example, Andy Murray. And whether Murray would stand for this, hmm. um, whereas the other guys don't—I don't know if they have the the political capital to be challenging on on that. And and of course, early in his career, you did get Federer kind of calling him out for a lot of his kind of behaviour in terms of injuries and retirements and kind of timeouts he was taking. So you know, Calvin's right. There was a bit more. Yeah, you know, when people like Federer speak, it becomes a, a bigger, more kind of fraught issue. Whereas it's it's. Even the Dimonor quotes said, "Okay, you know he he has cast doubt on it, but it, it's someone that most people probably in the in the broadest sporting casual sense don't know who this is, and it's not that big a significant thing. And you probably look at Djokovic beating the world number whatever Dimonor is at the minute twenty five in straight sets, and you don't really bat an eyelid because you know he's that good. Um, so yeah, it, yeah, Calvin's right. It's kind of harder to make a big storm of it, and I, I just don't know who's gonna." beat him at the minute to be honest particularly in that bottom half he's it, 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 just hard to see him not getting to the final even if he is on one leg as he claims to be mm. yeah it would be a, a remarkable achievement if he really is on one leg to to get to a grand slam final he has so many grand slam finals now uh that he scarcely remembers some of them calvin tweeted an extremely funny quote um which i missed from the press conference last night actually where he said, being the only guy remaining in the tournament that has won a Grand Slam, of course, flatters me, but I don't think it's going to make too much of a big difference. I don't know. I know Sitsipas, for example, probably the most experienced guy out of all of them. He's played the final stages of a Grand Slam quite a few times. I think he has never played a final. Am I wrong? And one of the journalists points out, you beat him in Roland Garros. It was a good match. You came back from two sets down. And he said, that's right. Sorry, my bad. Um, I mean, imagine having, in the words of Calvin Beton, the great thinker, imagine playing in and winning so many major finals that you forget who you've played and beaten in some of them. Uh, Stefan Sizbaz does have a very good chance of making that two major finals after he came through a five-setter 
with Yannick Sinner. He plays uh, the Czech surprise package, Yulia Hechka, in the next round. Uh, he did have a two-set lead on Yannick Sinner, which he then sacrificed uh, to give us yet another uh, five-setter and yet another late night. It was one of those five-setters to an extent where one guy plays well for two sets and the other guy plays well for two sets. But I think there were some pretty competitive moments. Calvin, as someone who has um, criticised Stefan Sitsipas's backhand uh, one way or another over the years, it's interesting that it, it held up so well in the kind of cross-court exchanges against Yannick Sinner, who, who's got one of the better two-handers around. Uh I, I only saw the last three sets, and I'm not sure it did hold up well. I know a few people had said that, and, I, you know, he hit some flashy shots. I'm not sure it did hold up particularly well. I think what he did do is he served very well um, and managed to cover it up. But in the in the rallies, I think that he was never better than 50-50, mm. backhand to backhand with Sinner. Um, and I think what he did well in particular was he managed to stop Sinner getting his forehand into City Pass's backhand, and also Sinner's not one of the great volleyers. Um, whereas I think a better player would have drilled his backhand. If he, if if a better volleyer had Sinner's forehand, they'd have drilled City Pass's backhand and got into the net. And it's just mm. not his game. Although I was impressed with Sinner, to be fair, I thought he really added a lot of variation and different type of stuff to his game, um, which is something I've been critical of of him previously. Um, I still have doubts whether this is not the best we see of Sinner because he's still in the big tournaments. He doesn't beat the the seeded guys above him regularly enough. He, I mean, it's interesting you say he has added variety. He's got Darren Cahill in his corner now, um, who's obviously regarded as one of the best coaches in the world. And he was actually, it's the first time I've seen a coach really actively using the hand signal rule. So uh, people yeah. may not know that coaching is obviously allowed at the uh, Australian Open this year. It's on trial at the Grand, all the Grand Slams this year. If the players at the other end, you're not allowed to say anything, but you can use hand signals. And Cahill was pretty just holding up two fingers, and you know, as if to say num- plan number two or whatever that particularly meant, which I thought was very interesting. Um, he was definitely and... telling him just. He was definitely telling him to drill the backhand. They, they, yeah. they, they went to him on a few times, and he was 100% saying keep focusing on his backhand. I'd be interested to see, actually. I know that, um, I don't know whether any of the listeners listeners follow on Twitter, but there's a great um, account that does cover things like this called Tennis Insights. And I'd be interested to see that they sort of um, measure the effectiveness of players' forehands and backhands. Um, and I'd be interested to see if they've done one on uh, City Pass's backhand, say, compared to Sinner's backhand during that match mm. and, and what was more effective. But I, I would be surprised if, if he's a if he isn't below average on their metric, which is pretty accurate in terms of backhand effectiveness. George, back, backhand aside, or what words? I mean, that was a big result for Sissipas. I mean, he he's really struggled since that French Open final at Majors. You know, he's looked a bit of a shell of himself, and I felt kind of lost a lot of confidence. So, uh, you know, he's in a really good position now to reach the final. Uh, you know, I, I would be putting money on either him or Corder from this stage, as well as Lehek has done. Um, I think Hatchinov would probably be the one I'd be most surprised about in some ways, even though Lehek is quite a su- surprise package. But We're yeah, going I mean, Lehechka, by the way, George. Lehechka, apologies. Ah, yeah. very good, very good. Sorry, apologies. Um, I knew I was pronouncing it wrong, though. I could see there's something <laughs> funny going on with that C, but, you know, given <laughs> my uh, poor 
anglophobic uh, nature. I didn't make any effort, which is anglophobic. I mean, you're not anglophobic, George. You're quite the I'm opposite. Not anglophobic. Of anglophobic. I'm the opposite, you're, opposite of that. I'm you're xenophobic. I mean, you're losing xenophobic. it, as far as I can tell. Yeah. Sorry, well, you were I'm saying. Just... <laughs> no, I was just saying mentally. I think that was a big result for him. I I had Sinner down to win that before the match, and although it, you know he got himself in a tight position, losing that kind of two sets lead, he did well to kind of steady himself and get through. So, yeah, I think I think that was a potentially positive moment to get back um, on track at the majors when it was feeling like his career was starting to stall a little bit. Calvin, you had you had something to say. Sorry, yeah. Um, I think what I was going to say was on that, actually, the guys, what I was just referring to, Tennis Insights, have actually done a really interesting one on uh, the Corda catching off match. And they've got Corda ahead on every single metric. Um, which would suggest, and they've said that they've played a couple of times before, I think, and Corda's won both, or they played three times, but once Corda was pretty young. Last year they played twice, and and every single thing on their metric, Corda is uh, is just better. I found it really interesting that because you'd think mm. that, for example, backhand to backhand, which is Hatchinov's better shot, um, mm. on it's not better than his foreigners. I'm I'm criticizing myself there. Relative term. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's a good backhand. It's a, he does have a good backhand. Um, but even Corder is, is beating him on backhand to backhand. Mm, that's interesting. I mean, I was looking at Corder's like winner stats the other day, and I think he's got fewer than twenty backhand winners in the entire tournament so far, and he's played quite a lot of tennis. So that does tell you something about about what's going on there. But maybe he's a more solid shot than than I had anticipated. Calvin, I've got a technical question for you because Sitspass said something on court afterwards that was quite technical, um, and he admitted as much. He said some of you won't understand this. And sure enough, I didn't. Um, he said, I think that I just... He was, he was asking, being asked about what got better in the fifth set after he lost two sets in a row. He said, I think I just released my arm a little bit, released my wrist on the serve. That helped me a lot to generate more power and accuracy, something I wasn't doing before. It completely changed the way I approached this match. Does, does that sound like something a player can do mid-match? Um, yeah, it, it's the... It's the something I always tell my players to do is just relaxation. You'll always get more power with more muscle relaxation. If right. you're tent, if your muscles are tense and tight and you're, you, you end up trying to force things and, and push things and muscle them. Whereas natural power comes from relaxation. Hmm. Um, and I'm sure he had Mark Philippoussis in the box, uh, who I spoke to the other day. And uh, I said, how much do you actually say in the box? And the the unspoken question was because Apostolos talks a lot, um, and uh, Mark is suitably diplomatic actually sometimes, and he didn't say a lot. I'd seen today actually related to City Pass. I'd seen there's a um, in Dubai there is a um, a junior ITF going on, and I saw on the I looked at the draw as I tend to do look just look at these things, and I saw that on there is. Probably the words, being that I've worked in futures tennis, futures and challenges tennis, the, the, the words that I have seen as more than any other words over the last three or four years. Is <laughs> I already know what this is. Sitsipas <laughs> wildcard. <laughs> the number of times I have seen P Sitsipas WC on a draw sheet. Oh, and it's because it's the other one. We're not talking about, we're not talking about Petros anymore. Oh, Pavlos. this isn't Petros anymore. It's Pavlos. No, it's Pavlos. Yes, yeah. Oh, of course, because it's a junior event. Yeah, I I did see that, and I was like, "Peace, it's a pass wild card." Very funny, but I didn't because it's a junior event, not a not a futures event. Okay, fun. Um, I assume that that came to your attention because Marcus Butland's son is playing in it. 
Yeah, that must have been his um, his tweet that I saw. Yeah. Yeah. Um, having said that, I were, you know, I get we we give Petros a little bit of stick. Him and Stefanos actually took um, Neil Skubski and Wesley Kulhoff really close in the doubles. I think yeah, it yeah. was uh, seven six in the third, maybe wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was ten. It was a yeah ten seven match tie rate. Yeah. Very close indeed. Two and two hours and three quarters, I think. So. Uh, yes, yeah. you know, not the worst doubles pair in the world. Uh, anyway, let's move on. Um, I don't know whether we want to talk about Ben Shelton or Andre Rublev. Let's start with Andre Rublev because we've just talked about a great match tiebreak in the doubles. This was a great match tiebreak in the singles, albeit perhaps not for quality. Um, I would argue this is another match where no one played very well at the same time. Uh, classic five-set match that. Um, but Holgerun served for the match at 5-3 and was broken to love. He had match points at 4-5 uh, and, again, went a bit passive and, and missed them. And he was 5-love up in the match tiebreak and then lost it 11-9. Um, George Holgerun is a good player, clearly. And I said to him afterwards that he, you know, the fact that he's re- he was really, really disappointed. And I said to him the fact that he was against a guy who is, let's face it, you know, the second highest seed left in the draw probably shows how high a level he's playing but he has very high expectations of himself doesn't he yeah and to be honest i i had him down to win that one as well um i thought he'd been playing some good stuff i think rublev as we've said before is probably quite close to his ceiling whereas you know rune it feels is on the up and i think rune you know i may this may come back to bite me when Djokovic's hamstring snaps or something but I, i think rune would have been the bigger test for him to be honest i think there's less scarring there I'd be quite surprised if Rublev really was the guy to finish um, Novak off. So, yeah, disappointing for him. But again, he's a very young guy and he's had a big burst through last year. You know, you can't knock a solid fourth round um, first slam of the year for him. And he he feels like he's going to get better. And, you know, we mocked him over the years for his comments about Nadal uh, and the clay. But... You know, he does feel pretty comfortable there. So it'll be int- really interesting to see where he's at this year um, coming into that season, particularly, you know, given Nadal's struggles and not, you know, teams not there. You know, Novak hasn't quite hit the heights on the clay um, the last year. So that's, um, it'll be interesting to see how he comes into that swing, I think. Hmm. Uh, I should also point out that this match went down to, as I say, match tiebreak, Runa serving at 9 10. And Rublev smacks a backhand return into the tape, and it it lands dead on Runa's side. A few of those, haven't there? Was it Murray Berrettini as well? Murray Berrettini was that, and there was a Tommy Paul match. I think it was against Pati- I think the Batista Agu match yesterday also was a a cord. Uh, what's it called? A horrible way neck. to end. Uh, yeah, I mean, and it's difficult, isn't it? Because like Murray had just won a five setter against Berrettini, and he sort of had to put his hands up and say sorry. And then wait, you know, couldn't really celebrate. Um, it's a very kind of awkward situation. I think it was. I think it was Berrettini. It wasn't Kokanaki, was, yeah, was yeah. it? I yeah. think so. Yeah. Berrettini. Yeah, yeah. Berrettini. Yeah. I don't Kokanaki think. Um, yeah. I don't think Jensen Brooksby would have been too fussed by not <laughs> celebrating them. Well, he actually did have one at a really crucial moment against Casper Ruud and didn't fist pump it. And I was like, oh, mate, like. Stick to what you know. You're going to fist pump net cords at two, three in the first set. You should be doing it at big moments. Otherwise, you're breaking your routine. But anyway, that's, Jensen Brooks is no longer in the tournament. So because he got absolutely pummeled by um, Tommy Paul, like one, four, and three, which I thought was a really odd result. I mean, Tommy Paul's a good player, and and maybe we should talk about Tommy Paul um, because he is next up against Ben Shelton, 
Uh, for people who don't know Ben Shelton, he's the NCAA champion. He's a, a lefty. He's got he has hit the fastest serve of the tournament so far. He's the first NCAA champion to reach the quarterfinals of the following Australian Open since Arthur Ashe in 1966. Uh, he had never been out of the United States until he flew to Australia for the United Cup. I, I mean, hell of a story, Calvin. You know the college system well. I, I guess, is it turning into the kind of place where it produces these guys ready to go in the pro game straight out? I think in Ben's case, um, it's a bit skewed because he was ready for, he was ready to move out of college tennis twelve months ago, um, mm. and were it not that his dad was the head coach of Florida, of University of Florida, and they really wanted to win uh, the tournament, I, th- I think that, and his dad probably wanted him to get the the kudos for the University of winning the NCAA's. I don't think Ben would have still been in college a year ago. Um, right. So I think he went. He was com- comfortably by a mile the best player in college tennis last year. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's a bit skewed to say the first player that won it and made the the quarterfinal because there would have been a lot of guys who, had they stayed, would have made the final and then made quarterfinals. If you know what I mean. Mm, I see. Um, and Tommy Paul as a matchup, George. I mean, look, watching Ben Shelton on court after he beat uh, JJ Wolf in the All American fourth round, like he, he incredible energy. He was so pumped. But if he was going to hand pick a quarterfinal opponent, I'm not saying Tommy Paul's a bad player, but he's unseeded. Like it's a hell of an opportunity for him, isn't it? Yeah, it's a great chance. Uh, I've been really, really impressed by Shelton this tournament. Um, I was watching him from a bit of a fancy perspective more than anything in the third round against my boy Papurin, um, mm. who uh, and he just absolutely demolished him. I mean, I think I, I think I was joking on the WhatsApp that Papurin's not much more than a serve, to be fair. So, but you know, he had more variety than I was expecting. Shelton, he, he hits the ball so clean though, the, the power. Yeah, it's, it's really, really great clean hitting. Um, Tommy Paul's had some good results over the last couple of years he's really kind of matured as a a solid tour player and you know there is there's always a bit of bite when it's two compatriots as well you know particularly americans there's a lot of you know that'll be a big match for those two a chance to kind of prove their way through and you know tennis has has lacked good american players really for a long time and we've talked about tfo a lot but Corder's a high quality player sheldon feels like he's got a really high ceiling as well it would be good for the sport in terms of getting it back up into that u.s market the focal point a little bit more if, if some of these guys can push on and have good rivalries and mm. tommy paul why not be part of that as well i would also put brandon nakashima in that bracket i, I like mm. i've been really impressed with everything i've seen him do and the way he goes about his business there are now 10 american men in the top 50 in the world 20 percent of the top 50 in the world are um, american men which I mean, I was talking to Bob Bryan about it, actually, funnily enough, the other day, and kind of saying, you know, this is pretty big for the game, isn't it? And he said, well, yeah, like, America expects greatness, and want, so hopefully one of these guys can go and win a slam in 12 months. And that maybe is the point. Like, if none of these guys win a slam, and you could say soon, then it, it might actually not mean that much, because if you want to, you know, penetrate an American sport, you've got to win. Yeah. I Quarter, I'm feeling has turned a real corner this year and is he he feels kind of ready 
to me. I, I think he'll push Sissipas really close in the semis. I'm, I'm not saying he'll definitely win, but he, he's played some really, really good stuff and looked really impressive, and he's got a pretty complete game. Suspect this will be a tournament too soon for Shelton, but he, I, he'll be there and thereabouts, I'm sure, as well. He's going to be... A, I'd be surprised if he wasn't a top 10, top 5 player. Um, and well, I think this next era, there will be chances to, to win slams. If anybody, when we were just talking a couple of minutes ago about um, being loose and muscle relaxation, if anyone wants to see a, an example of that, then watch Ben Shelton, because uh, he has one of the loosest arms I've ever seen. Um, he's up there with Kyrgios in that regard. Um, what some, somebody did say, though, that cracked me up a little bit, I think Ben Shelton is brilliant, by the way. Somebody, I saw somebody earlier comparing with John McEnroe. They said it reminded them of John McEnroe, and I, I can't, other than they're left-handed, I can't think of two players who play anything less than anything less like each other i don't know how anybody's managed to come to that conclusion <laughs> right coming up next we'll dip into the mailbag and we'll also look at the women's draw step into the world of power loyalty and luck i'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse with family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chabacasino.com Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChumbaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back to Tennis Unfiltered with me, James Gray of iNews.co.uk and the iNewspaper, live and exclusive from Melbourne. I've got George Belshaw, the tennis writer, and our resident tennis coach, Calvin Beton, alongside me. Calvin, I'm going to dip into the mailbag for the uh, beginning of part two because I've got some some big questions and some small questions. I would characterise this as somewhere in between. Uh, it's come via Twitter. You can follow us on Twitter, Unfilter Tennis, uh, and it's come from a listener called Get. And he says, been watching tennis for a while now, almost daily, and of course 250s and challenges whenever they're on. But there are one thing as an athlete of other sports I've always wondered and been confused by is why so many professionals will hit so many overhead dry volleys. You see them miss so often. I understand get get it back quicker and the other player is out of position. But when it's a high lob, they tend to hit a lot and miss wildly. Why not position and hit it off the bounce with more power and accuracy? Just doesn't seem like a good gamble to me. Um, Calvin, state your case. Um. It's for the very best players. It's not a gamble, and I think it's one of those that you kind of remember the misses. Um, mm. it's, it's sort of a, a, a cognitive bias like that. 
Um, but the, the the good players, they will put away 19 out of 20 smashes. They're just always, you remember the misses because they look so easy. But mm. the, you know, the only reason why you would let it bounce is if it's close to the net and you can bounce it high and hard over. But other than that, it's just not worth the extra time that if you're competent on the overhead, it's not worth the extra time that um, you're giving your opponent to get back into position by letting it bounce. I I had a question about this question that I was wondering if Calvin could also answer for me. Is there such thing as a drive volley? I thought a drive volley was the one where you kind of swing through it at full pace, at kind of like a, a proper swing in the air. But what, what's a drive volley? Does he just mean? A I, snap? Su- I suspect this is, is a, a, mis- a mistranslation. I, su- I suspect this is someone who heard, heard, heard the phrase "drive volley" and heard it. I as thought, drive I thought volley. So was it, drive is he referring to drive volleys rather than? But he's, smash? He's, yeah, he's, no, he says, oh, no, but he said overhead drive volley, which we would call a smash. I think the one I think thing I always okay. something I, I always found strange, and um, I know um, Louis Kaye mentioned this to me. I'd, I'd never really thought about this. He mentioned this to me years ago. Was that why in the women's tour? Why at the start of when they're warming up, why do they warm up sort of nine or seven or eight, nine or ten overheads when when it comes to the match, they always drive volley them? Yeah, um, they, and I, they, they don't hit the actual smash. Surely they'd be better off warming up drive volleys rather yeah, than and I, I, tell, I still have mental scars from watching Conta in the French Open final, I think it was. She just, or it might, in fact, I think it was the semi finals a couple of years later. She missed some shocking. No, it was the semi-finals against Vondrasova. Sorry, some shocking drive volleys in key moments where it was just easier just to step in and either volley it or take it earlier on the rise as a smash. I mean, it. I, I just it, it dri- drove me insane how kind of mental it was taking those kind of high-risk drive volleys and just sending them at the back of the court. Um. Again, I feel like I'm kind of like the Ben Shelton appreciation pod here, but if anyone wants to see an overhead, uh, watch Ben Shelton's overhead because, as I said last week on the pod, it might be the best overhead I've ever seen. He he does not miss them, and he hits them hard. I look forward Is to it... Ben Shelton having the worst overhead day of his life against Tommy Paul now. A little technical one on, on the overhead, actually, that when you ask players, and I always ask players this, uh, when they come to me and they can't, they they don't have good overheads. Is you ask what uh, what is more important in an overhead, uh, power or placement? And they usually say placement, and it's not. It's power. If you hit an overhead hard and in the court, it rarely comes back. And if it comes back, it comes back with an even an even easier overhead. So the area what what why players usually miss them is that they try and go too deep with them and they try and place them. And the, the target for an overhead should always be on the service line. If you hit the service line hard, it, it will rarely ever come back. And if it does, at worst case, you're getting another one of the same shot and you hit the same shot again and it won't come back the second time. Hmm. That's your top tip if you're playing so uh, this weekend. If, if, if you see anybody miss one long, that's just poor decision-making and poor smashing. George, do you have something to say? George, did I was you just going to say, if Calvin, yeah, if Calvin's claiming Ben Shelton's got the best overhead in the world and he ends up playing Novak, who's got one of the worst ones in the world, maybe he'll just be tactic <laughs> to just keep it in the air all game. Uh, and what a, what a match that would be to watch. 
Uh, right, I've got a couple of other mail bags. Uh, George, this one is definitely for you. It's from Rugby Posts oh. on Twitter. Uh, talk about alternative scheduling ideas for the tournament, please. I know how much you love scheduling. Yeah. Uh, are, are we talking in the context of kind of bringing women's on the uh, kind of best of five, or are we talking kind of FA Well, whatever you want, mate. Like, like, honestly, if it means I get out of there before 5am, then I'm pro. Yeah, I mean... Well, I think a general rule across tennis should be absolute maximum one night session if you're going to insist on a night sh- session. I think you night mean one, are one match in the night one session? One match per night session, yeah. I, I think night sessions are terrible and just another way to rip off fans. I think if you're buying a ticket, you should have be able to go into anything. I hate the changeovers where they're taking one set of fans out and bringing them in. So I, I would personally ban them. Um, I think there's just got to be more fluidity um in terms of the matches people quite often are suggesting these days best of three sets for men in the first fourth round and best of three for the women and then take them both to best of five that's another option um i'm i'm growing more um popular with that but then i see matches like murray against berrettini and you do get some absolute belt of kind of five sets in the early rounds when you least expect it, but maybe that was just being a British fan of Murray at least this stage of his career. <laughs> we're not going to get any late five set classics with him, so we've got to kind of cherish the early round ones whilst we can. But yeah, I, FA Cup style draws, my other one, not, it's not so much a scheduling thing, but just, no, some, just one slam's got to do that. I really want again. that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think for me, the, the best solution, and we've talked about this a lot, as you can imagine, over the last two weeks in the press box. I think. Um, the day sessions at the moment are three matches. I think they should be two. Uh, and I think if you made sure that the women were always first on in the night session, that would also make sure that no one's starting a match at midnight. Because the problem is if you're second on in the night session, the first match is a men's match, you actually don't know whether it's going to be two hours long or five hours long. Whereas with a women's match, that window is a bit smaller. So there's a, a smaller margin for error. Um, I would also start the night session a bit earlier, maybe closer to 6 o'clock rather than 7 o'clock. All of these little marginal changes, because when it's gone really late in this this past fortnight, it's been when they've started the night session late, because as you say, George have had to turn fans around, because the middle session has gone long. Uh, and it's been when you've had men going um, pushing women really late. This is going to be very controversial. I'm making this a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but if you really want to solve uh, scheduling problems in tennis, I mean this beyond the Grand Slams as well, then the person who has actually come closest to hitting the nail on the head was actually Patrick Muratoglu in terms of actually having timed sets of matches, completely throwing out the scoring system. Honestly, I literally said it the other day. I turned to someone and said, you know, I think Patrick might be right, and that pains me to say it, but... Yeah, the idea of saying, you know, two hours and whoever scores the most points, I don't hate it. Like, I don't, I appreciate that tennis has this unique scoring system and I'm, Calvin, I feel like you might defend it more kind of eloquently than I ever could. But, you know, it is about winning more points most of the time. I'm not opposed to different scoring systems in different tournaments, but the slams have to stay the same. Um, they're, they're the biggest test. They're the way, the, the, these are the ones that we get the epics on. The epics, mm. the great matches, are always the best of five sets. And mm. you know, you, you can list on one hand the epic best of threes that we watched over time. They're enjoyable at the time, but the matches that you remember, they're always because they're best of five. Mm. Um, uh, and I just don't think we can 
I don't really see how you can change that. I don't like the idea of both men's and women's playing best of three at the start and men's and women's playing best of five at the end. The, the eternal problem is, and I, I've been trying to word this, think a way of wording it, and I'm, I'm not on one side or the other. The eternal problem is what you're getting at the French Open, is that with the night session, the Aussie and the, and the US, they try and do one men's, one women's, mm. which means that if you have... Even just even if you have one competitive match there, you're probably finishing too late. Yeah. But yeah, you can't, so, so you can't have so so that's gonna you're gonna finish late. So then the alternative is like the French do, where you only have one one match on the night mm. session. But then they get criticised for because they weren't they, they didn't have the women's matches on. But the women's matches they're only best of three anyway, and they're just too often not competitive. And, and well, and I they're just—they're think... just guaranteed to be shorter. Yeah, I mean that's—that's that's the more yeah. salient point, I think. Um, I, I think uh, a women's match and a doubles match is fine. I think if you make the ticket prices better, then you have less of people being like, you know, this is unreasonable. Also, make the balls faster. Ban them is all you need to say about the night sessions. They're rubbish. They offer nothing apart from to the the pockets of the tournament organizers are already making enough they so should you would just, not exist you would just have tennis. a day session that has four matches on it and like a not before on the fourth one yeah yeah like it women, okay maybe not even a not before it? yeah yeah it's, 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 gre- it's, it's greed pure and simple there is no positive thing that comes out of these night sessions apart from the tournament's pockets that is it and that's tennis unfiltered from george belshaw uh, let's move on because uh, everyone's getting a bit angry. Uh, Elena uh, Elena Tsurdi, uh has been in touch again, as always. She's got more than one question. Uh, we'll start with the first one. Uh, best strategic plan for the brilliant Andy Murray to make the best of the upcoming season? Uh, game adjustment, scheduling to clay or to not clay? Calvin, maybe, maybe you want to start with this one. Um, Murray's plan is a couple of weeks off and then Rotterdam, followed by Dubai, Indian Wells, Miami, and, there, and then a decision to be made on the clay do you think it's worth him playing the clay in order the idea last year was competitive matches before the grass season i mean he keeps saying that his body is holding up fine and there's no um issues in that regard and if that's the case then i'd definitely do the clay if he wants to start getting seeded in the slams he's got to play as many tournaments as he can mm. he can't be just he's not gonna get seeded at wimbledon or the the us open unless he has a great run before then or unless he plays the clay mm. George, do you sort of agree on that? Yeah, I do. And my, uh, again, tongue-in-cheek reply to what Murray can do to make his season the best possible is not get dragged into too many five-setters in the first two rounds of slams mm. that he can't walk around in the third round. You know, mm. Berrettini's a reasonable five-setter, but he's still slow to get out of the traps again. He, you know, he's capable of winning these matches quicker. He, there's no reason he should be getting dragged into five with Kokonakis. You know, he proved he can kind of hobble around and claw three sets away from him later on why not do it earlier simple as that obviously in, in fairness Kokonakis played out of his skin for the first two sets it wasn't nah. that wasn't that Murray, wasn't Murray let him play Murray let, let him play, play. No, well I'm let joking he just did you know I, I, I criticise him for I've criticised him for these instances before but I think the Berrettini and the Kokonakis match would be extremely harsh. Uh, they weren't his fault. They, 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 they it's was a, it's a pattern, Calvin. It's a pattern. We need to. <laughs> Calvin, do you think he's it out? Do you think, without letting George bait you too much, um, do, do you think he is getting the hang of playing more aggressive and shortening points and you know leaning on the forehand? Uh, not really. No, um, I haven't seen. 
I didn't see. I mean, look, at the end of the match against Kokidakis, he certainly did. And he ended up winning. But yeah. it's just his nature. It's the scorpion and the frog again. He's still, when you've spent your entire life from the age of six until 35 um, winning matches by making balls, frustrating opponents, on going by the credo that the last person that puts a ball in the court always wins every single tennis point. I, I just don't see him changing at, the, at this mm. stage. I think the, the other question I'd ask to this question is what, what are we considering success for Murray these days? I mean, for me, if he can get back in the top 30, that would be a, a successful season. Semi-finals of Wimbledon. That's, that's that for me, like, I don't think he's going to... If he makes the semi-finals of Wimbledon... And and loses in straight sets, I think he might go. Yeah, he's, fair enough. He could have made the semis of this. Like, yes, I know. But the, 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 like, yeah, complete. I literally said it. I said if he beats Patissi Gut, he makes the semis. No question. Um, but I think success is semis of Wimbledon. He won't be happy yeah. with quarters. And then again, if you, if you're calling that his success, then you have to play the the clay. You have to get seeded. You have to get give yourself. Yeah the best chance possible to have two straight set first two rounds and then he's capable of beating anyone on grass still mm. maybe not I, I didn't um i didn't get the feeling when he'd lost and when he left the grounds and when he in his interviews after his press conference i didn't get the impression that he thought this was his last australian open did you no. guys no, no no not at all like he he's he in quite a good place yeah he, he well he thinks he's really good now i mean he is really good obviously but like he he He's been more bullish about his tennis than ever before. And he was just, I think he sort of thought the same as we do that he just shouldn't have got dragged into two five setters. And that he proved by beating Berrettini that he's good enough to beat players at that level. And he did play brilliantly that day. But his serve speeds dropped 20 miles an hour over the week, which tells you a lot about what happened to his back, which actually was what Bob Bryan said. Bob Bryan said lower back's the biggest problem with the hip because you've all of a sudden got a lopsided body and like one hip that does one thing and another hip does another thing. So, right, let, let's move on because there's loads to get through. Um, one word answers on the this one, please. Kenny Koala says, which of the quarterfinalists on the women's and men's draw is your most surprising? George, do you want to go first? Um, I was surprised to see Magda Lynette get to the <laughs> quarterfinals. Seems quite reasonable. And Liri Lehechka, I think you Lehechka. can tell how Lehechka, excuse me. I think you can tell how unlikely it is for a player to do this by looking at our fantasy picks, and one person in about two hundred picks him. So I always yeah. use that as a pretty good indicator. And I was surprised it was one. That's how yeah. I know it's a surprise. Yeah, uh, Calvin, who's your biggest surprise in the uh, the men's quarterfinals and the women's? Oh, it's Lehechka in the men's, without doubt, yeah. isn't it? Um, mm. The women's, is, is there ever a surprise? I am surprised Carolina Pliskova has made it on the basis that I named uh, my fantasy team yeah. after her. So I was going to pick Carolina Pliskova as my surprise because she's actually winning. Uh, that is a real surprise. Everyone I mean, there's else. Only, there's two of the top 24 seeds, two of the top 22 seeds. Have made the quarters. I mean, Three the men's wins. isn't the men's isn't much better, to be fair. Anyway, yeah, Lena Rabakina is literally the twenty second seed. That's no, four. Two, what? Well, there's two top Regula, twenty seeds. Sabalenka, 
Fagula, Sabalenka, Ostapenko, Rybakina's. Ostapenko's oh, 17, didn't that's right. Sorry, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Arguably, the women's semi-finals at the quarterfinals are stronger than the men's. I think they're quite good uh, quarterfinals in the women's. I've been quite impressed. Obviously, we lost Fiontek, but the top, the top half, Let's particularly not, Rybakina, yeah. Ostapenko, Pagula, Azarenka, that's not a bad lineup. You're making a bed for yourself there, George, because um, th- those matches will have been played by the time people listen to this and quite possibly absolute duds. Um, who knows? <laughs> Especially because Rebecca and Ostapenko is first on and they both really struggled with the sun on Rod Laver the other day. But anyway, let, uh, um, we have to move on, George. I can't let you talk. Uh, John Williamson says, given the disruption of the quarterfinal draw at the Australian Open, will any female tennis player win more than one Grand Slam during 2023 or 2024? Uh, usually we default to Naomi Osaka here, uh, but presumably we think Iga Shontek is going to win more than one. Is he asking one across the two seasons or it more than one per so, yeah. season? Sviantek will win three minimum across the next two years, I think. Yeah, Sviantek will win two this year. Hmm. Um, well, that seems like a good place to move on to the women's draw then, because the first name I have written down is Iga Shontek. She was a shock exit in the fourth round she lost to Elena Rybakina in straight sets it's a pretty interesting match actually in in lots of ways um she was given a time violation before it even started because you're allowed 60 seconds between warm-up and the match starting and she was still sat on a bench at 65 seconds uh I asked her about it afterwards actually and she said that the um that she didn't really hear the umpire and it's very loud out there and I was it was a bit Weak to be honest, um, but it, I think it definitely discombobulated her. She had 40 15 in both the first two games and lost them both. Uh, she struggled with the sun uh, early in the day as well. The, the few players have struggled with this. Dan Evans is talking about it a lot. That if you're first on or, or second on after a doubles match, the sun's really awkward. Um, I don't know why it's particularly here rather than I mean, Wimbledon, the sun doesn't shine, which helps. Uh, but yes, she struggled with the ball toss. Uh, she also struggled with the fact that Elena Rabakina was banging them down at 122 miles an hour and hitting her forehanding. Well, actually, Mark Petchy made a good point on his commentary that the backhand is the better shot, certainly the more consistent. George, how, how surprised are you? I mean, uh, I know it's WTA and we always say no surprises, but as a result, it's a surprise. I mean, look, I, I thought Siontek would win the tournament, but in terms of the type of player who's capable of beating Siontek, Rybakina is definitely one of them. I mean, she's a fantastic player. Um, she hits the ball brilliantly. She's got a big serve. She gets a lot of free points, which a lot of you know women's players don't get that many free points off their serve like she can. Um, and she hits it really nicely off both wings. The the, the biggest frustration with Rybakina is, you know, she's won Wimbledon last year, been utterly dreadful for the following six months. But she's capable of doing this. And there's no reason why, in terms of everything she's got as a recipe for a player, she should be top five in the world. And I know she didn't get her Wimbledon ranking points, and that is obviously a big barrier to her being that high. But her form was so poor in between. So but I actually think this is quite a good result if she can kick on and maintain that form because she is someone who can create that rival with, with Sriontek. She's young. She's got everything in there. Only 23. Um so, yeah, I, I think it's not necessarily a terrible result, but she'll probably go on and lose to Ostapenko, and I've said that. <laughs> I think as well, you know, we talked, um, Calvin, off-air about the lack of variety in the women's game, and actually, Shontek and Rybakina are quite different players, and I think, as George says, if you had those two playing each other four or five times in big events, in big matches, 
and yeah, Rabakina should be seeded like nine or something, so it wouldn't be a fourth rounder. Um, then it probably would be quite watchable, wouldn't it? Yeah, for sure. I think that's a match that I'd like to see more of, and I think we will see a lot more of that later mm. on um, in some of the slams coming up. Um, and I think most importantly as well that you can see Rabakina uh, um, thinks that she can beat Svontek. There was mm. no lack of belief or panic that I've seen in a lot of players over the last year that they're just not convinced that they can beat her whereas she looks like she has that's no concerns at all yeah and I think I getting to know her a bit more you know Wimbledon was pretty fraught she got bombarded with a lot of Russia questions because to all intents and purposes she is Russian like I, I don't really want to beat around the bush about this she her parents live in Moscow she grew up in Moscow the Kazakh Federation have a lot of money and she wasn't getting much support from the Russian Federation because there are lots of players, and they offered her a way out. And you know, fair play. Brit Britain did it. Britain did it to Novak Djokovic. Britain did it to Cam Norrie. Britain did it to Ali Ashbedne. Uh, you know, with varying degrees of success. And obviously, Djokovic didn't even take it. Uh, so it is a thing that happens. And what I'm saying is, she got asked a lot of questions about being Russian because she's Russian. And so it meant that we didn't get much of a chance to see her personality. And, and she is quite introverted, uh, you know, like Shrontek. And it's taken us a while to get to know Shrontek. And just, I feel like, Rebecca and I, I interviewed her in interview room three, which for people who know these events, there's the main interview room, then there's room two, and then there's like places you put the doubles players with the grace to respect. <laughs> and uh, I interviewed her along with one other person in room three after the second round and just felt like getting to know her a little bit more and, you know, understanding her personality. And she is quite bullish. And, you know, I asked her about playing on outside courts because she's complained about that before. And she said, oh, I don't care. As long as I keep winning, I'll get on the big courts eventually. And she did eventually, of course, get onto uh, Rod Laver, um, which is the second time she's played there. She played Barty in the third round a few years ago, and then she played Shantae. So it's quite... It's quite the baptism, I would suggest. Um, it wasn't the only shock result. In fact, just half an hour later, Iga Shontek uh, left and was followed out of the tournament by Coco Goff, who lost in straight sets to Yelena Ostapenko. It, it was, a, again, an intriguing matchup because I think they are quite different players. Goff was br is a brilliant athlete, and I, I know people... There's a cliche about calling black sports people brilliant athletes, but Coco Goff is the best getter in the game. I'm absolutely sure of that. She also has probably the best backhand in the game, but as was kind of demonstrated, she doesn't have the best forehand, and her second serve is exploitable, George. And it's kind of the same problems with Coco Goff, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And, you know, against lesser opponents, what she had probably would have been enough, but. Ostapenko's I think Ostapenko might be one of the most kind of underratedly fun people to kind of keep your eyes on in tennis like or 100%. in any sport actually she she's just off her head I mean she's great fun <laughs> she really just kind of says does whatever she likes she'll either be absolutely dreadful or absolutely brilliant but when she's hot she's absolutely fantastic she's a really good watch I, th I think she hit more than 30 winners or something kind of blasted a past Goff, you know, as you said, Goff, a brilliant kind of getter. Um, so, yeah, I, I, you know, Ostapenko is another one who just hasn't kicked on since winning that first slam. She won it really young. She's more than capable. She's still young enough, you know, 25. You know, there's I know this is, this is the thing, right? Career. You say a year later, Ostapenko, and you're like, oh, God, veteran. 
Yeah, she's 25. Like, um, my my only slight concern, and I say this kind of advisedly, is she's not in great shape physically, and mm. I would question, like, as the tournament goes on, she's also still in the doubles, I think, you know, or the, she's still in the mixed, I should say, uh, with Dega Hernandez, I think, and I would just question whether she's gonna have all of her physicality, as because you know she doesn't play a super physical game, but it's hot and it's Australia and and. Okay, Rebakan is not going to make it physical, but if she gets through and plays Jessica Pagula, for example, then she certainly will make it physical. And similarly, Victoria Azarenka, who's the other, the other option. Um, yeah, I, I interviewed Ostapenko at Eastbourne this year, and it was great fun. And she is, she does say what she thinks, and she's quite quirky, and she's also very caring and very passionate and quite thoughtful. She said she was incredibly naughty at school, which didn't surprise me at all. Um, <laughs> And yeah, I just, uh, I think, as you say, George, I think she is an underrated character. Um, on the other side of the net, Coco Goff is someone who, whose character everyone rates and everyone thinks she's a great person. Um, she came in and did press and she actually broke down in tears during one of her answers. And, you know, uh, it's always distressing to see an athlete in distress, but you want to see how much it matters. Like, it's, it's important to know that they care. Yeah, and look, Goff is obviously really good for tennis and one of these kind of great, potentially great ambassadorial figures for tennis that we've kind of had over the last few years, you know, with guys like Federer, you know, Serena, um, you know, she can fill that void, but you do need both types of these players really as a sport and Ostapenko, no one's going to be putting a poster up of her saying she's, you know, a gloriously great sports person. She's so warm and kind, but she's real. Um, you don't get that often enough in professional sport. I'm not saying Goff's not real. I think Goff is a genuinely very nice, um, well-brought-up lady. Um, but Ostapenko is just raw, and I, I really love that as well. So long may that continue. I don't think she's got any plans to keep filtering what she's saying, which is only good news. Just quickly, Calvin. Uh Kokogoff's still in the doubles with Jessica Pagula, and she talked at length about uh, using that frustration of losing in the singles in the doubles and kind of playing through it. I mean, you've obviously worked with players who've played singles and doubles at the same time. Is it ever a good thing to go out of the singles and still be in the doubles for your doubles game? Um, the singles players who may, who are mainly singles players, when the reason that they say they don't play the big tournaments is because... Uh, and don't play doubles in the big tournaments is because if they're still in the singles, they don't want to be having to play doubles. And if they're out with the singles, they don't want to be having to play doubles. <laughs> um, so, so um, yeah, I, I, I think it's weird. in terms of Coco Golf, I think she genuinely sees herself as both, though. Like, yeah. so, you know, mm -hmm. some players have done that. McEnroe was that. Stefan Edberg won slams in both singles and doubles. Um, you know, and I think the Williams sisters obviously have. Um, and I think you know some players just really love playing doubles, mm. and I think she is definitely one of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think I think she sees it as a good part of development of her game. I do think she's a, a good thinker about the game and sees the benefits of you know honing skills you get by playing doubles. You know more so at the net, etc. And she's a good volleyer. So yeah, um, I think she doesn't get forward enough still to use that volleying. No. She's brilliant at the net. And she doesn't find opportunities to get in enough, I think. I, 
I think for the first time I've been convinced as I mean I'm a huge fan as everyone who listens of will will know of Coco Golf. This was the first time and I saw it a bit in the Radicanu match where I'm starting to get a little bit concerned that she might not win slams. She might not win majors, she might not get to world number one. That that forehand is a real problem. Hmm. And I think it, it's not something that is just gonna get better. It's not something that you think, oh, it's just a little bit of it's a little bit raw, but when she gets it right, it's gonna be it's gonna be fine. There's some it needs some technical work and I'm not sure that she's got the the staff in that are gonna do that, if I'm honest. I was going to say she needs to parachute in Coach Besson, the fixer of four hands right now. Um, I tell you what, I would I would love six weeks with Coco Goff because that forehand is resolvable. It's you can sort it, but the staff that she's got at the minute, I'm not sure that they are going to sort it. If I'm honest. And sometimes it probably just needs a new voice as well. I mean, you know, she's had the same people for quite a long time. I think I'm right in saying, and you know that sometimes stagnates um let's move on to other bits of the draw because so far we've just talked about two women who are out um jessica pagula i think we have spoken about her talents before and we'll probably speak about her later in the week as well someone who's kind of gone under the radar because we've just been waiting for her to break down is arena sabalenka george i i don't think the bookies agree but i've got her as favorite for the tournament now yeah i do as well um I, I really fancy I've fancied her kind of from the start. I've had a good feeling about her. Obviously, Sviontek was my favourite. I thought the way the draws panned out, I didn't see too many major obstacles in there. And some of those obstacles have kind of fallen. Um, you know, Vekic is a good quarterfinal draw. Um, you know, Vekic has been a top 20 player. Obviously had trouble with a knee and other kind of injuries. Um, but that she goes into that big favourite to reach the semi-finals. She's a better version of Pliskova, I think. So she should, on paper, win that match. And I'm expecting Pliskova to beat Magda Lynette, which means Pliskova is going out next round and she will be the victim of some swearing from me if she doesn't lose <laughs> that match from a fantasy perspective because I'm basically a pitch between Pliskova versus Corda. Pliskova versus Corda for a bottle of wine, really. So I, I need her to keep plodding on and Corda right. to fall at some point. I'm not sure Hatchinov's going to do the job for me. So, um, Pagula is my second favourite, but closely followed by Ribakina. I think one of those three are the most likely to win it. And Ribakina is capable of just blasting everyone through. But I think a Pagula Sabalenka final would be pretty tasty to be honest in terms of clash of styles and two players who we've been wanting to make that next step who've been really good at tour level and not quite done it at the slams be nice to kind of get those two there because they've earned it for the rest of their tour results i think Hmm. calvin any 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 thoughts that irida sabalenga isn't going to win the australian open uh yeah i think you've always got to have thoughts because she's proven that she she tends to go a little bit at the end of slams Mm. Um, so I think it's far from certain. I, I actually think Rubikina is probably favourite. Yeah, won one before. Yeah, which which I mean can also technically be said of Ostapenko, but Ostapenko so long ago, and as a and as a ranker for that matter. Uh, but you know, both so long ago that it you know it hardly feels that relevant. Um, George, you, sorry, you you were looking like you were about to say something intelligent. I was well, it's certainly not a particularly intelligent comment, but just. Uh, 
in recent years, having won one before in the women's game actually isn't much of a bonus to win you on. It, it really true. is normally actually less experience. So. <laughs> yeah, in fact, you'd rather not have the uh, the experience of it. Yeah, if anything, if 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 we're to go by women's tennis, then the favourite is Magdalenette. <laughs> well, and and who would argue against it? I'm I'm up there for Magdalenette. Grand Done really well, hasn't she? To be fair, yeah, she's had yeah, a really great. I tournament. think I'm right in saying she never got past the third round of a Grand Slam, and she's been in a lot yeah. of them. But uh, but she's had good results before. Like she's always a bit of a tricky kind of first couple of rounds customer. Did she? She's she quite jabbered, didn't she? Mm. She's beaten four year, seeded uh, players on her way to the quarterfinal. She beat. Yeah. She's beat. Um, uh, Alexandrova, Kontavite, and then obviously Caroline Garcia as well, which is a very good win. You'd have got a pretty good price on Magda Lynette being the Polish player who went furthest in this tournament. I, <laughs> I think you've got an extremely good price indeed. Uh, on that note, I think we do have to end. Uh, thank you very much for listening. As always, I've been James Gray of inews.co.uk and the iNewspaper. I've had George Belshaw and Yorkshire's very own Calvin Beton, in case you get confused about whose voice is whose. That's always Calvin. Uh, I am technically from Yorkshire as well. People don't know that and people don't believe it. But anyway, um, thank you very much for listening. Please do leave us a rating and a review wherever you get your podcasts. It's really important. It makes a massive difference to all of us. Uh, but most importantly and most enjoyably, please come back next time. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Podcast Network. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.